Um, if you have your Bibles, please open up to Luke chapter 11, where we're going to continue through our study. So it's Luke chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 37. And while you're turning there, a couple things. This, this uh, church rummage sale is coming up quickly. It's this Friday, or no, it's this Saturday. We're kind of getting setting it up on Friday afternoon. All of the stuff is on the form. And it's just, you know, Deborah kind of, uh, you know, ran this idea past me and just sort of the policy on like how stuff happens at the church. See, in some churches, I think what happens is somebody kind of like God moves in somebody's heart and thinks, I think this is a real great idea. And then they go to the pastor and they say, why don't you make this happen and just run with it? Well, if that happens to me, what I say is, well, I'm kind of like (laughs) pretty like overcommitted and I'm doing everything God wants me to do. But God must be raising you to do that. So Deborah like had this great idea, and it's like, well, sure, run with it. And then the same thing with the whole shoebox thing. I got an email, and she, you know, she said, hey, I've been doing this. Or, you know, can we do this? And I'm like, sure, run with it. If God's leading you to do that, go for it. Now you're going to have to get up and speak. And it's funny how people don't like standing in front of people to speak. And Jackie did a great job. You know, so I'm excited about this. I've never participated with that. And she sent me the DVD and she's like, now watch the little story about Okinawa or whatever her name is. And I'm like, by the end of the video, it's like tears are flowing down my face going, oh man, this is a good one. And so, so I'm excited to, to participate this year with the shoe boxes and um, Chargers Fellowship is coming up. We, we got a new projector. It actually, like it had nothing to do with the Chargers game. It just happened to kind of work that way. But really part of our trip out to Spain, we start seeing, you know, there was a baptism, all the lights were on, and they were projected. I'm like, man, you can, like, actually see their projector. And, like, ours, we were fading. Like, we were turning off the lights to see the words. And then it was like, it's like, oh, man, am, are my eyes going bad? And then we started, like, boarding up the windows. And it's like, man, we can't make it much darker in here. And then when I saw that, I'm like, well, maybe we actually, like, after five years, it's time to put a new one in. And so hopefully you could see the words, like all the lights were on today and I could see the words. Um, but it's, it's going to be great for the Chargers Fellowship. Um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Um, we have hot dogs, drinks, um, bring, um, if you, you don't have to bring a side dish or whatever, but you can, it's a potluck if you'd like to bring it. Um, with that, make sure you bring home your dishes because we are having a rummage sale on Friday. And everything's going to be priced to go and all the money's going to alternatives women's center. So that's the announcements. Let's pray and we'll dive into the story. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you for your word. Um, Lord, we ask, um, as we get into this text, uh, father, I pray that your spirit, that you would help us Lord to understand what it, what happened in the setting, um, that we would be able to go back in time, uh, find ourselves here at this uh, this lunch and really take in all of what happened and what Jesus said and that we would be able to um, draw the principles from the story and apply them to our lives. Lord, we ask that um, you would soften our heart. We come from uh, so many different backgrounds and so many different issues happen week in and week out. And so, Father, I just pray that as your word goes out, Lord, that you would touch each one of us Lord, draw us closer to you. Um, This is a convicting story, Lord. I've had a hard time this week kind of uh, really opening myself to allow you to speak to me in this. And so, Father, um, we pray that these hard words of Jesus um, would would hit us squarely in, in, in the face, Lord, that we would become soft people who love you. 
Um, Lord, we, um, we just thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in our lives in this church. Um, we give you all the glory and all the praise, and we thank you, Lord, for your grace that abounds. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Luke chapter 11, verse 37. Now, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, do you not, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and people who walk over them are unaware of it. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them. And you build their tombs. For this reason also, the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. And Father, we do thank you for this story. We pray, Lord, that as we navigate through this text, that you would help us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you'll notice behind me, during the first service, people are looking like, Gunnar, that's not Israel. Somebody like messed with your PowerPoint presentation because I always have Israel, like a map to help orientate us. Can you guys tell what it is? It's a coffee cup. Well, some would call it dirty. See, a stain. I am, um, you know, there's a rumor out there that you can Google anything. You can't Google anything. See, I was looking for a really stained coffee cup. I searched for like, you know, not hours, but at least minutes, you know, like I think I, I put at least a good solid five minutes of searching on Google. And this is the best stained cup I could find. And it was on a how do you clean stained coffee cups website, which I exist. I did not know that. Um, 
about 16 years ago, I was introduced to a whole new like breed of, of person. It's called a Navy chief. And the thing I learned about Navy chiefs is they have some of the most vile coffee cups. I think, see, I didn't, I only lasted 12 years in the Navy, but it seems like that every Navy chief, they were issued when they first joined the Navy, a coffee cup, and then they use it for black coffee for the course of their 20 years and never wash the inside. It literally, from the rim down, is black, probably, I mean, like you could scrape pictures into it. And during the last service, there were a number, number of Navy people that were all cracking up. Um, Bob, I know, was in the Navy, and he's like, he's trying, he's like, I don't know if he was a chief, but I think he's guilty by the look on his face. I kind of am guilty about the whole coffee cup thing. And uh, like I know Esmeralda sitting here, she's laughing because I think it was last November, like after our whole, um, when we have our big Thanksgiving celebration, and, you know, I kind of managed the coffee around here, which might, I probably shouldn't be sharing this, but, but like at the end of the thing, she like took the whole coffee pot apart and was like scrubbing. And I'm kind of going up to her, these coffee pots have been marinating for four years. What are you doing? I mean, they were like brand new. And she was done. like, I didn't know you could do that to a coffee pot, like make it look brand new. And the reason this picture is kind of here is because I think it kind of captures the heart of this whole story of Jesus confronting that the reality that people are tendency is to judge based on the externals. Like we look at the external and God looks at the internal. God cares about our hearts more than like how you dress, what you look like, what you know, I mean, he, he wants your inside. And so the picture's there to kind of remind us of what the, this is about. And so what's, what's the story? The, the situation here in verse 37. Now, when Jesus had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And he went in and he reclined at the table. So, so the first thing we learn is it's around lunchtime. We're all about lunchtime right now. He'd finished teaching after the service. Hey, excuse me, Jesus, would you like to come over to our house for lunch? And... And Jesus was going to go over and have lunch with this person. But what do we know about a Pharisee? Um, we don't have a lot of Pharisees like floating around our church or we don't like as Americans, we don't interact with this sort of a personality type. But a Pharisee was on the scale of Jewishness, of, of maintaining the law, uh, keeping the law, enforcing on the people. They were at the very top. I'm not saying they did it correctly. But Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, said this concerning Pharisees. He says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Which that's kind of insightful when Jesus is looking out at the crowd and he's, most people want to come to God because they kind of, if there's eternal life, they kind of want to make the line to get into heaven. So how do we get into heaven? What do we have to do to get into heaven? And so Jesus said, listen, unless your righteousness, your, your perfectness before God exceeds them, you won't get in there. And the reality is like, well, how do, like, how, you, how do you exceed what they do? And you can't, which we'll get into later. So these guys, they, it wasn't just the Bible. 
in the Old Testament, there's 613 commands. And then for each one of these commands, the scribes and lawyers and Pharisees and teachers would then give a whole explanation on each command. And they could tell you all 613 commands and all of the commands connected each command. And so here's this Pharisee. He invites Jesus to lunch. And the first thing that I want to point out, the observation that so many kind of contemporary Christians, um, like especially fellow pastor friends of mine that are like in the cool club. I'm not in the cool club. Like I can't spike my hair. I can't like grow a goatee. I just like, I, I mean, I probably could, but I just, I just, it's just not, wouldn't be me. But so like a lot of my friends that are really, you know, into reaching the cool, like they're cool. And the one thing that they like totally pride themselves on is, well, Jesus hung out with sinners and prostitutes, and all, which is true. He totally did. But they like hate hanging out with religious people. And it's like, guys, well, Jesus hung out with religious people just as much. Like Jesus loved everybody. He wasn't exclusive. He, he ran in all the crowds. And so this guy, this religious person invites Jesus to lunch. It might have been the most unpleasant lunch situation Because Jesus doesn't fit into our mold of who Jesus is. His message to them, I doubt that lunch even got served by the end of this meal. That he was so in their face and challenging them about religion. And so they they go over, verse 38 says, When the Pharisees saw it, saw what? Well, we'll have to figure that out. He was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. And so at the meal, there was a table low to the ground. There would be cushions. They would come up. They, maybe they would sit, sit up to eat a little bit. But the meal normally ended up with them like reclining on their side. It was more about the discussion. And the, uh, they would have questions. They would respond back and forth. The food was really a secondary issue. Like the food was something they did as a sidebar to the the, the fellowship time, the time of uh, community. This is how most countries kind of do it. Like, like in America, it's about you can have conversation until, the, until you take your order and the food comes. Then when the food comes, stop talking because we got to eat. And then once we get the food down, we can talk again if you're getting dessert. But then it's like, let's figure out the bill. Most American meals are done within an hour. Like I'm, t- like I'm an American like, and I'm like a fast eater. Like I, an hour would be in a very long meal for me. So I have to work on like chew your bites, take, take into it. Like you can swallow it. You don't have to inhale it. You can talk in between. Like this is something I have to work on. Well, just coming from Europe, it's like, well, the whole food is almost like a secondary thing. It's like you go and you, you just, it, it, it's, it's a much more of an experience. And so this is what's happening. Now, as they go in there, Jesus just kind of hops up runs and sits down. And this Pharisee, what he saw is it says that he didn't ceremonially wash his hands. And there's this, <gasps> now, this isn't a hygiene sort of washing. You know, we're all guilty. Like, well, well, we all go to the bathroom. But in the bathroom, like for me, like when all the guys are like in there and you're kind of finished with your business and, you know, sometimes a guy won't necessarily wash his hands. It's like, oh, like, sorry, girls, I didn't mean to, like, expose. Sorry, guys, I guess I should say. But, like, if you like, if you see a guy, like, not wash his hands, or if you're a guy in there, you're like, oh, there's somebody else in here. I've really got to wash my hands, like, just because that's, like, what you do. And, and uh, like, we wash our hands, so we're good. We're really, we're totally clean. There's hand sanitizer. 
This is just all in a theory, right? And uh, I'm getting like there's some lot of awkwardness. Wives are going, that's not true, is it? But if somebody doesn't wash their hands, you like make a mental note. Like, okay, I'm not going to like be shaking their hands. Or somebody sneezes, they how are you doing? It's like, well, why don't you go take care of that hand situation? And then like, this isn't that. Like James, the little James in the first year, Fredericks, he's been shaking my hand. Like during the announcements, he shook my hand. And it was like the most sopping, wet handshake. And like that kid just washed his hand and my hand afterwards. And so then he made sure he did it again. So his mom was real proud of him that he actually washed his hands while he was in there. This isn't what's happening on the Young's literal translation. Instead of saying that he was, he didn't ceremonially wash his hands. It said that he didn't baptize himself before the meal, which kind of more in our context puts it into perspective. There was like this huge ritual, not for cleanliness, but for trying to externally do the show to make yourself right with God. I looked up in the Mishnah, like it was about what is the process for washing hands? And it was so confusing that I really wanted to quote it to you guys, but it's like it was impossible to, my mind was swirling at the end of it. But I kind of got that if you poured water from your right hand onto your left hand, or maybe it was the other way around, there was definitely an order. The water could pour, it had to pour above your wrist, but below your elbow. But if water splashed above your elbow, this hand would be unclean. And, but if it, so there's a whole process of washing. Now, then when this hand was clean, then you could touch the other thing to do the other hand. But if water from this hand splashed on this hand, you were unclean. But and that's my simplified version. It was, I was like, huh? And so there was this whole process. But Jesus doesn't do that. He goes and sits down and you see the, <gasps> some translations said that, like mine says he was like surprised. But I see this more like he was shocked. I think the, the uh, King James says that he was amazed, that they marveled. They were totally stunned. How could this guy, like he didn't go through all of what the Bible tells us to do. Whoa, oh, oh, hold on. It's not what the Bible says. They had taken what the Bible said, and then they had added a whole bunch of steps that were not in the Bible. And then they started thinking, this is the way we do it, so that's a part of the Bible. And so now he just broke the Bible's command. No, 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 no. He broke your rules that you say the Bible says that the Bible doesn't really say, if that makes sense. They're shocked. Verse 39. And this whole meal, like Jesus, like, the, like if we really soak on these words, this is offensive. It, it should, like if you're a Christian or you're like a religious person, you know, like I would, I, I don't really believe in religion. Religion kind of is a bad word around here. But the reality is, is like, like I'm a pastor. So by our culture, I'm a religious person. And as a religious person, Jesus words like really kind of step on my toes here. Like this is really uncomfortable. It's been totally uncomfortable this whole week. And I'm going to share with you some of my struggles with this text. And then we'll kind of go through there. So Jesus, like they're all shocked. Like, you know, talk about shock and awe. They're like, what did he just do? Like, we can't just go sit at that table now because he's defiled the whole seating area. Like there, I'm sure there was a process of how to clean up this whole situation, but it wasn't like they were all sitting down filling these thoughts. It was like, he didn't do that. And now, oh, what do we do now? And so then Jesus says to them, hey, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup, like the coffee mug, and of the platter, but inside of you, 
you are full of robbery and wickedness. Like, he's not mincing words here. He's not kind of, oh, let's, Jenna was a Jesus man, so let's, like, he would probably sidestep the issue and kind of, you know, because nobody likes confrontation. Like, we might offend them, or Jesus just like, you know, you guys wash the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cut cup is just filthy. The same thing with the plate. You guys look all pretty on the outside. You have all your religion, but on the inside, he doesn't say you guys are dirty. He said you're filled with robbery. Like in the, the legal, like robbery kind of steps up. This isn't petty theft. This is a felony. And he says, you're not, you're filled with robbery. And I lost it. What was the other one? Wickedness. wickedness. That's not, that's not going nice. So you're filled with robbery and wickedness. You are evil on the inside. You have all your religion on the outside. You guys look pretty. You think you're doing good, but you are just vile the way God sees you. Do you think lunch was over at this point? <laughs> like chitter, like this is uncomfortable. Like he, he does not sidestep the issue. He goes on to say in verse 40, you foolish ones, you guys are fools. Like I love one thing about Miss Pat, who's not here right now. One of our questions when I first got to know her, you know, what, why is the Bible against saying fool? Or Because my mom would never let me say fool or something like that. I'm like, well, if you really think about it, like the Bible does call people foolish sometimes and calls fools. But that, if you really look at when you call somebody a fool, that's like a totally slam on them. Like it's a harsh statement. Jesus, you guys are all foolish. You foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. Like, so I think what he's kind of saying is like, you guys think you're the, the, the masters of religion, that you understand what God's all about, that you're God's ambassadors, telling people to do all of this stuff, to do religion. If they do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, that they're good with God, while the inside of you is full with robbery and wickedness. If you would just focus on your inside, like you might actually be clean. Like if you would actually listen to what God said and cared more about yourself on the inside, then you would be okay. That's my kind of take on it. And as I look at this, as he's kind of slamming religion, you know, I just came back from Spain and Italy, and it's very good. If you guys have the opportunity to ever, like, travel, like, don't just go on your vacations and not go to church. Like, go to church. Find other Christians that you can fellowship with. And then, see, the thing is, is then you, like, start, like, it starts... You're kind of challenged because in America, we kind of blur our Americanism, our patriotism with Christianity. We think that they're like interchangeable, that they are one. Well, they're not. And then you go to another country and they start doing things differently. Well, why do you guys do them that way? And then you start being forced. Well, that's against the Bible. The Bible says, and then you start thinking about it. You're like, well, no, the Bible actually, this isn't actually cutting against the Bible. It's cutting against like my American culture, my preferences as American. I was raised a certain way. And then you start, well, what's the principle here? And how does this translate in different settings? And so the one that I really wrestled with, like I often like talk about alcohol, like booze. Like this is something that I have strong feelings about. My strong feelings don't come from scripture initially. I stopped drinking because God did not give me the gift of moderation. I was an idiot. I mean, we're talking abusive mom that was a drunk. I had resisting evading rest while drunk. All kinds of stuff. The laundry list is long, but it's okay. The police department has forgiven me, and so has the sheriff's department, as I serve for a chaplain for both of them. They've, 
But so I have very strong convictions. But then as I developed in my Christianity, I kind of had, well, how does alcohol fit in Christianity? And in America, they don't mix. Like this is like, and there's, there, it's changing. But traditionally speaking, alcohol in America is Satan's juice. Like if you really go down south and you like start, like it really is like, like venom. And it's like, what, okay, what is that? What, the, what does the Bible say? And while I was in Italy, my friend Andrea, he's Italian. He's from Italy, but I knew him from seminary. He's a hilarious guy. And we were sharing and talking. And there was one day when we were getting on the train and Anna and Susan were having a conversation and somehow alcohol, we could, you know, cause you're kind of eavesdropping. I, 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 I confess I was eavesdropping on my wife. So I'm talking to Andrea and I can hear something about alcohol over here and it sparked like they were like, like it wasn't even a conversation, but it led into this like three or four day discussion with Andrea and myself about alcohol. And it was, I mean, we weren't fighting, but it was very like just, well, we come from different cultures. And he's like, no, I've been to America. I see the problem. Like it's totally because it's about drunkenness and drinking is just a step to drunkenness. I'm like, amen, brother. That's what I always thought. You know, that's like, like it was a, like from the time you started drinking, it was to get you to here. And then you stayed there and or that was ideal. But normally I would go too far and get into trouble. But he's like, man, I hear like we grew up with like, a, like there was like always like wine at lunch and wine at dinner. And if you got drunk, like if you were to get drunk, it would be totally shameful to not only yourself, but to your whole family. And like, he's like, this drunkenness is just not even a deal. And so we started, we had really good conversation about this. Like over the course of multiple days, it was one of those subjects that just, you know, and I'm like, well, you know, I, I said, well, one of my regrets or something I feel bad about is about 10 years ago when Anna and I went to Spain. And I was still very young in my faith, and especially with alcohol. And her Spanish grandmother took us out to lunch. And we were in Jerez, which is like the sherry-making capital of like the world. And at the end of the meal, she like treated us to like two glasses of sherry. And I was like, not going to touch it. Get that away from me. Don't like I don't drink. I'm a Christian. How could you stumble? Like, that was my heart. <laughs> and then I walked away, and as the Lord started walking on me, I'm like, why did I do that? Like, I, and I didn't really do all of that, but in my heart, it's like, why didn't I just, like, bring it to my lips, take a little sip, and say, oh, this is really good cherry. I have no idea what cherry, like, that's not what, <laughs> that was never my choice of drink. So I have no, like, but it was, like, her being gracious. And I kind of always felt like, man, that was, like, very, like, this religiously condemning sort of thing towards her and so i shared that with him and i'm like you know what i think i've come a long way to where now god's even convicted me that i need to like have a sip of alcohol or do something just for the fact that it ruins my whole like internal counter because i never was in aa but there's like the i made it a year no alcohol and then i hit like the 10 year mark and then when somebody would ask hey would you like a beer gunner and then, i don't drink it's been 10 years when really they're just trying to be nice and saying, hey, it's hot, you've been working, would you like a beer? And I was like, oh, no, I'd really just like a, like to, so I'd like a Coke or something to kind of, I wanted to have a sip of something to kind of remove my, like, ability to have this legalism in my heart. So my response wouldn't be, no, I don't drink, I'm a Christian, are you kidding me? 
And it's like, well, if somebody was to challenge me, I didn't stop drinking because I was a Christian. I stopped drinking because I was an idiot. It's like I was a fool to be biblical. And and so then I talking with them, I'm like, if you were to have a church thing, I would not be like seriously. If there was like wine, like I would probably just have like bring it to my lips and have a little bit and not make a big deal about it. But he's like, oh no, because he's Italian, so he's like larger than life, and they. You know, I don't know how an Italian would communicate if you tied their hands behind their back, but he's like, and he's just like, you know, all over the place. And so then in the discussion, he's like, well, Sunday after church, we, I have to take you to get a Florentine steak. And I'm like, man, steak, you have me. Like, so it's after church. I hadn't had a lot of water. It was a hot day and we're on this patio and the conversation, he's now teasing me about the whole alcohol thing. He's like, brother, don't you see all the wine here? Like every table had like a glass of red wine. He's like, because the Florentine steak, he's like, it's like when you take a bite of it and then you have a sip of red wine, like a special red wine. He's like, as it goes into your stomach, it's like a marriage, brother. It's like the flavors and the joy like you've got. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, come on, man. I'm like, and by the end of it, I'm like, if this, if I'm causing you to stumble, get a glass of wine. I don't care. But he's like, I'm just teasing you. I'm like, just like, don't worry about it. I don't want to do that. And I'm like, so then I'm like, okay, I got to go to the bathroom to wash my hands to be ceremonial clean before this stuff comes. I come back. And the thing I really didn't like about Italy is if you get water there, it comes with bubbles. I don't even know what you call that stuff, like mineral water or oil, like carbonated water. Thank you very much. I don't like that stuff. And I would get this it's like, oh, like this does not satisfy, but you have to go out of your way to get like the regular stuff, the real deal. And so I go wash and then the water glass was like this tiny little cup when I came back and it had bubbles and I'm like, oh great. But I'm like so thirsty. I'm like, I'm just gonna have to deal with it. So I like, and like once I'm like, whoa, that was not water. It was champagne. I guess part of the deal is they serve champagne. And Anna's looking at me like cracking up. And I'm like, what? She's like, it was tainted, bubbly fluid. I thought to myself I'd warn him, but I figure who can't figure out that it's champagne and not what, you know? And, I, and so we went through this whole thing. And I thought, you know, no, I've really like, it's, it's not, it's about drunkenness. And, 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 and. And I talked to him, I'm like, you know, the thing that really bugs me about the whole alcohol discussion, even because I, I really want to know what the Bible says. And, and as I started talking to people, I started coming with the theories of like, well, like Bible teachers would say, no, the Jesus didn't really turn water into wine. He turned water into grape juice, which just isn't true. Like anybody with it, like a little bit of language and understand it was wine. And so to me, when the argument, when you take a preference about something and you inject it into the scripture to me it totally ruins like the whole discussion because now i've lost respect for you because i I, it's i subject myself to the bible and i walked away with italy thinking you know this is awesome like i like i feel good about things i feel like i had a little bit of alcohol so now i can't say i don't drink anymore i uh like i feel like my legalism has been removed and so we go to spain the next weekend we drove up to Sevilla to go to church where Anna went to church. She was like super excited. It was a baptism Sunday. A girl that she, a two-year-old girl that she used to babysit was now 17 and was being baptized that day. And they were like all excited to see her. I, I kind of like understand a little bit, but not a whole lot to get by. 
But the one thing I kind of understand, international church language is potluck. They were having a, they were having a potluck on that Sunday. And I was like, this is awesome. And they kept inviting Anna, but they're like right like in all of her face. And she's like, well, do you want to stay or not stay? And I was like, well, yeah, I want to stay. But it's one of those like spousal sort of things. Like, are you saying you really want to stay? Or are you being polite in front of these people where I say yes, and now you're going to be mad at me at the whole th- like? So we kind of did that whole dance. Like, what? Like, let's communicate here, are we? And it's like, I'm like, are you kidding me? We're in Spain. The food is amazing here. And a potluck? You want to really discover food? Go to a church potluck. Sorry if you're from another country and visiting. We're having hot dog wieners for today's potluck. And uh, not exactly. It doesn't hold true. It breaks down. So we stay for the potluck. The place was packed. The food was amazing. And the person that I kind of, that Anna knew happened to be this 17-year-old girl that just got baptized. So we kind of sit. I didn't realize it, but we were sitting at the kids' table. The kids' table. But I was just, my, I was, and everything was behind me, and I was facing the wall. The table was this way. And I was just amazed. Like, a Spain potluck, like, like the nice cured ham, fresh bread, cheese or queso, if you speak Spanish, like, like, I, like I got. And so I'm just like, oh, jamón, por favor, jamón. And I, like, I mean the good ham with the bread, and I'm eating it. And I'm, this is like, we need to take pictures and show Americans how potluck <laughs> is done. Every table had shrimp. Oh, como si he's saying espanol pointing and they said something i don't know what it is and i'm like eating the shrimp and i'm just going to town and i think the kids like i was kind of lost about what was happening and and i'm like i don't care if like i don't understand a word they're saying i'm just going to sit here and binge on this great food and i'm going to maintain the american reputation that we eat too much and all that stuff but <laughs> lay off me i was like i was having a great time and so i got all into it and i stood up because I wanted a refill, which is the, from the center table. And when I turned around, it was the first time it dawned on me I was sitting at the kids' table. I realized that on every single table was a bottle of wine and beer, regular and the unleaded kind. <laughs> and I remember, like, I just had this whole thing in Italy about how I was prepared and have grown, like, like that. It's about drunkenness. It's not about consuming or not consuming alcohol. It's about drunkenness. The Bible gives very severe warnings on. And I'm not saying this to like go encourage everybody to go drink. Like I am very firmly, like personally convicted against alcohol. I've seen it cause so many, so much damage and so much harm. And I don't want my humor to kind of like offset that. But when I turned around and I saw like the, it was like I had to walk 10 feet and I don't think you could see anything on me. I'm hoping externally. But in my heart, it was like this. <gasps> like the church bought bottles of wine. <laughs> and in the side of me that wants to, like the side of my flesh that like really like does like alcohol. It's like I sat at the wrong table because then I would have to have a glass of wine. To like not offend, but God put me at a kid's table. And 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 I'm see and then there's the pastor like having it, but nobody's getting drunk, and it was just, but it all of a sudden it dawned on me, I'm such a legalist. Like in my heart, this is legalism. And I'm like judging like this whole situation. But I'm also looking at it like especially today, like how and I don't have an answer, and I'm not trying to test anybody to like challenge me but we're having a church potluck 
Like, let's just say somebody brought a case of non-alcoholic beer to church. Do you know, like, I don't know. I don't think, I don't, like, our church is really loving, and I've, like, I don't think there's a lot of, like, like, like that. Like, I don't think I would have a lot of issues, maybe. I don't know. But in, the, but in my mind, it's like, if that happened, I can't imagine the fires I would have to be putting out. How would I tiptoe around the person who brought this? And you know what I mean? Like, it would, like, this is, but it's not from the Bible, like there's some re- there's some principles, but we have to be careful about some things. What what does the Bible clearly say? What does it doesn't say? And if we have convictions and and feel strongly about stuff, we have to make sure that our convictions don't start getting morphed into the Bible. Some other issues, like there's all kind, like from music to stuff. Um, this is my one that I struggle with, like personally, like the whole alcohol thing. When I see a Christian with a beer, like I really like it's totally okay, but I have to go through like. All of the papers I've written, like, because my, on paper and blogging and everything, like, I have a very balanced view on alcohol. But in my heart, I'm totally the scales tipped. And so whenever I see a Christian with a beer, I've got to have all of what I know about the Bible going on in my head. They're not getting drunk. They're not, like, it's just like, they're, it's like not, you know, like, my mind is a scary place to be sometimes. (laughs) But the one that I felt, like, in restarting the church, one of the issues that I never really, thought would be a major point of like where this is like balls in the air all kind of people like saying stuff to me i'm trying to figure out well i got to kind of sort this out on the church's polity raising children like raising children how do you educate your children the bible makes it very clear that parents have an obligation to raise and disciple their children it there is nothing in there that says if you're a Christian and you want to educate your kids that you have to homeschool them this way. It doesn't say that. There's nothing in there. Now, there's a lot of biblical reasons why somebody would choose that method. But, but a lot of times we take our convictions about how we want to do something and then we start judging others who don't do that. And then we say, well, they can't really be Christians if their kids go to public school. Well, and, I, and this is a harsh, like it got real like uncomfortable in here right now. But this is serious. This is something like we need to hear. Like reading this text, like God makes it very clear that we are to raise and disciple and pour into our kids. Now he could lead you to homeschool. Like, see, now that I have kids, see, this is like what Gunner does that like tips his tail. What's the official policies of the church? So I'm not even going to tell you what I do with my kids because it doesn't matter. Like we've come down a certain way. Before I married Anna, like I was just raised in the public school. Like I just went to public education. Anna was homeschooled. And when I met her, I'm like, you're a freak. Like, what is this whole, like, <laughs> like what is this whole? I, I liked her, so I was really more diplomatic than that. But it was like, what is this whole homeschool thing? And she's like, well, I really want to homeschool my kids because I really had an experience. And I'm like, oh, well, well, can we just talk about that? Like, when kids kind of happen, and then we're like, well, now we're there. And so we've, like, read, like, what's the best thing for our kids? And so we've landed on a certain thing. But you know what? I know Christians who like love the Lord and are passionate and have kids that are passionate and they have kids that are in public school. I know kids, families that are, that are not the most best Christians and they have kids in public school. I know homeschoolers, families that are a total mess and I would want my family to be nothing like their family in the home. Like just because the externals, it doesn't mean that you're walking with God. It's an external thing. And when I start looking at scripture, like the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. You know who wrote the Torah? Moses. How was Moses educated? Moses was taken into captivity by Egypt, like their whole like Israel was. 
God said, like, hey, they're going to kill all the boys. Put your kid in a little basket, send him down the river so that he can be saved. It worked out. God worked it out so the mom could raise Moses. But he was raised as an Egyptian. And every scholar will tell you that God used Egypt, a pagan, totally like anti-God form of government, to equip Moses to write the first five books of the Bible. Daniel, same thing. You look at Eli, or no, you look at Samuel. Samuel, do you know what his parents did? They gave him away. They sent him to boarding school. They sent him to Eli to study under Eli. They were only allowed to see him once a year. And God used Samuel in an amazing way to lead Israel. And so the, the, the heart of the issue is we want to pray, we want to seek. And I'm not saying homeschooling is bad. I think homeschooling is a great option. Like it's totally like when I first met Anna to now, it's like mainstream, secular, like, like everybody seems to be homeschooling. And it's a great option. But don't think just because you homeschool, that makes you sanctified in the eyes of God because of external reasons. And, and he's, he's challenging these Pharisees because they had so been committed to the externals that they lost sight of the inside, what God cares about. If I do X, 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 then God will love me or I'm better than everybody else. And I really think that religion kind of like it might, it might have started good in certain areas. But when I look at my human side, like I'm a total competitor. And as I'm leading my life kind of like with the I'm going to die someday and I want to go with God, my default is like, well, I want to live really well because if I'm better than that person, I'm better than that person, I'm better than that person, God's got to at least take the first 50%, right? You know, like, so if I, if I am good enough that qualifies me to be in the 51 percentile of <laughs> South public school, like a D got degrees in my book. And so it's like, well, 51%, like, certainly God won't wipe out everybody. So if I just leave a good, live a good life and I'm looking at everybody else and judging everybody externally, I think that's kind of where the sort of this heart came from. Or that God like convicts you and you start, I got to really speed up. I'm hoping I'm making my point. Like he's really hitting them hard because they had lost sight of true religion, true what God wants. So verse 42, he's going to give him three woes. And I think that there's elements in each of our lives that we have to hear these woes and humble ourselves before the Lord. Because it's all about Jesus and what he did for us, not about our works, not about our own righteousness. And he says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe and mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet you disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting others. He says, yeah, you tithe, you give money, you do it very externally. But when you leave the synagogue and there's injustice happening, you don't do anything for justice. So the people of God should care about justice and helping those that like they can't help themselves. Those that are being victimized that we should step out and care about the actual people that we run across. And the love of God. And he says you can do these things and still be faithful to the law. Like you don't have to stop your tithing in order to be a person that loves justice and loves God. He goes on second woe to the Pharisees. Woe to you Pharisees for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. Says you Pharisees it's all about you and people looking up to you and people saying how awesome are you. See here. 
um, the chief seats are not in the front. See, in this day, like in the synagogue, like imagine if there was a row of seats behind me that looked like big, like a king should sit in them. Like, you, like I've been at churches where there's these big, I mean, I almost think I need a stepladder to get up there. And so then there was the seats where they could sit and then everybody could look at them and say, look at those dudes. They got the good seats. They must be really special. They must give a lot. They must do all the law. They are the people that have it wired. And they wanted those seats. Here, on the other hand, we're, we're a Christian church. Come to church early so you can get a good row seat in the back. You know, it's like the thing. Like I noticed, like we fill in from the back first. Today, there was a little bit of like, you know, like there was a seat issue. And I'm like, well, do you want me to talk to the person? And the person's like, well, no, we can move. I'm like, you sure? Because I know you're assigned seat and I don't want to like, no, 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 brother. We can like sit wherever we want, you know. But we fill it in from the back, then come forward, because you want a fast escape. <laughs> and he says, you want to be in the marketplace. You want to have your big outfit on. So, oh, there's Pharisee Bill. How are you doing? I noticed that in the giving in the synagogue that you gave a couple thousand dollars. That's awesome, brother. Like out in front of everybody. Like, look how good you are. Look how good you are on the outside. Then the third will woe to you for you are like concealed tombs and people who walk over them are unaware of it. See, we missed this whole. This is like this is the slam dunk to the Pharisees that we miss. See, they're like in their day when somebody was buried in the ground, it would be a tomb that was at least the length of their body. It, they would paint it, or whitewash it white so that it was very apparent what it was. So you would not step over it, that you would not step on it. In our cemetery, I'm on the board of directors for Valley Center Cemetery. Everybody's dying to have that job. You know, like we love it. We like all of our sense of humor. Like in Valley Center Cemetery, there's, there's grave markers. But the grass that you walk on, you're walking over bodies. That would be totally that you couldn't do that according to the Jewish law. If you were to like walk over a body, you were defiled for a whole week. If you happen to see if they painted all the tombstones and they missed one and grass was grown over or whatever reason that you didn't see it and you stepped on it and then you came to know that you stepped on it, it would kick off this whole like week long process of getting yourself ceremonially clean. You could cancel all your other, like whatever you had going on that week, cancel it because you would defile everybody. You couldn't interact with people. And so what Jesus says to them, he says, you guys think you're the religious people like leading everybody? You're like this unmarked grave, meaning that when you touch people, you defile them. Like that's pretty, like this isn't the Jesus that we know and love, is it? He's so loving and kind and compassionate. And he is. But he has to confront them for their religion of what it is. In verse 45, I almost couldn't read it today without chuckling. I've been laughing about this verse because this was me all week preparing for Sunday. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Like, um, <laughs> I don't know who invited. Like now it's, we're introduced to a lawyer and we'll talk about what a lawyer is. But this guy essentially says, time out, Jesus, like, you were okay kind of like with the Pharisees, but you kind of crossed that line. And it's like, now the stuff you're saying is you're kind of starting to hurt our feelings because, like, now you're kind of implicating us. Like, you're kind of, you want to maybe rethink, like, I'm sure it was an accident. Maybe you could just go back, like, we'll rewind the tapes and we'll start over so that you could say this in a more pleasant way for us. 
And I just hear Jesus say, oh, I'm sorry. Did I miss offending somebody in this room? Well, let me be clear. And he's going to give three woes to them. Now, what do we know about the lawyer? See, Luke is the only one that refers to uh, this group as a lawyer. All of the other group, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, they refer to a this is scribe. And so these guys were the ones who wrote out the law, knew the Old Testament, created all the laws. Basically, some person described this group as being the religious IRS. That they were who you had to, like, if you, there was a question about anything, you had to kind of see them, talk to them, figure out to get clarity. Does anybody here like calling the IRS? <laughs> Not everybody wants. No, no, it's a real question. You guys, <laughs> nobody likes talking to the IRS. <laughs> they, don't, they don't know anything. See, when I restarted, like when I came in here to like get this church restarted, there was like paperwork and stuff and questions that hadn't been touched in a long time. And there was a very early on, there was, um, I had to call them. Like there was no other way. And I'm like, I'm not a businessman. I was in the Navy for 12 years before I did this. So I wasn't exactly like, I didn't go to Harvard Business School but I'm like, I got to call them. I don't want to call them. If I call them, I'm going to end up getting arrested. Like they are just going to like take me down to like book me. I like whatever. I don't even know what I'm talking about. I'm going to say something that ends me in the big house for a long time. And so I call up. I'm like, yeah, hi, how are you doing? This is IRS agent. And they give you your little number. How can I help you? I'm like, yeah, well, my name's, um, well, my name's not important. I'm just a pastor of a church. <laughs> In the state of California, and like, well, can we have your tax ID number? Well, I, I, I'd prefer not to say all that stuff. Can I just like, can I start with my question? It's like, sir, we're, we're not here to like get you in trouble. We're, we're here to help you. I'm like, that's what you tell everybody <laughs> to set them up. <laughs> they were actually very nice and very helpful. But, but I was so, like even just doing taxes, like most people use like a tax preparer that's all studied up in the law. And I kind of like using it because then if I get in trouble, I feel like there's a buffer there. Like they're going to take him, not me. Like certainly it was his mistake. Like he signs on the bottom line. That's worth it to me. But these guys were the IRS of religion. You would, you know, like Jesus, now you're starting to step on our toes. When you talk about this whole like calling them robbers and wicked, like saying that you like the to have the best seats in the house, to be greeted in the marketplace. And now you're saying that you actually are, we defile people like the same thing at the cemetery? Time out, Jesus. Well, let's see how Jesus responds. But he said, woe to you lawyers as well. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So they create all of these rules and all of the things that if you want to be right with God, you do all of this stuff. But he says, you won't even do it yourselves. You put it on them so that the burden is so great that their backs break. And that's what religion does. It's horrible. He continues. He says, woe to you for you build the tombs of the prophets. It was your and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your father because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. He's saying, it reminds me of Stephen in Acts chapter 8 that was stoned for his faith. He gives this huge sermon right before he's killed. 
And he basically outlines the, the history of Israel. And he says, what's new? Every single prophet that God raised up, our fathers killed them. And now you did the same thing to Jesus. And now you're doing the same thing to me. And they say, listen, Jesus says, your fathers killed them. And then you build these tombs and like worship them. Like that these prophets, like, oh, the prophet, like Moses, what a great guy and all these people. Because like, if you look at history, you, our fathers killed them. And now you worship the prophets, the very ones that were condemned. He continues, verse 49, for this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles and some of them will, some of them they will kill and some they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. He says that from the very beginning, he's not done yet, but every single prophet that was killed all the way up to and including that very moment that he was speaking, he says, all of that blood, the guilt is on you. It's like, well, how is this fair for this one generation? Like, how, like that doesn't even fair. But it seems it kind of like builds upon itself. Like all of this stuff, they didn't respond. And ultimately, that generation, Jesus was coming. They were going to kill the Messiah. They were days away at this point. And they're going to do the same thing to Jesus. And verse 51, he says, from the blood of Abel. Interesting. Abel is the first martyr in the Bible. Who killed Abel? Cain, his brother. What were they arguing about? Worship. See, Abel made a sacrifice. Cain made a sacrifice. God said, you know what, Abel, your sacrifice, it was worthy. Because it was like from your heart, it was significant. Cain, however, I'm rejecting your sacrifice. You didn't give me your best. It wasn't like your heart was wrong. And when Cabe saw that, instead of, you think, okay, well, maybe I should repent. Go, okay, Lord, let me go back. Let me think about this. Let me come and worship again. He looks at his brother and he says, that jerk, I'm going to kill him. And he killed him over how they worship God. So Jesus says, from Abel, that very first, that blood is on their heads. To the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it will be charged to you against this generation. It, we're not going to go to Second Chronicles 24, verses 20 and 21, but there we're told that the prophet Zechariah looked at Israel and said, you know what, guys? God spoke to you. You ignored what God told you, and now God's done with you. And they were so furious, they picked up rocks, and they, they killed him right there on the spot. Now, the fascinating thing about this, he says, you, this is what happens, but now you worship him. When I went to Israel last fall, you know, let me go to the next slide here. I'm going to show you. This is looking from, uh, this is from the temple, looking across. This is the Mount of Olives. These are all tombs going down the hill to the Kedron Valley. Um, and so this is like Bethany where Jesus had some of his stuff. He would walk down the hill, go into Jerusalem, talk in the temple. Then he would go back up to Bethany um, to Mary and Martha's home. And so we were looking at all the tombs, and, and our tour guide said something. He said, oh, yeah, you know, the closer you get to the temple, that real estate becomes very important. Like, you wanted, the, the Jews wanted to be buried as close as they could to the temple for when the Lord came. That would be the key spot. And so you'll notice all of these are tombs. Okay, just to put it, the scale into perspective, you see this semi-truck there? Do you see these tour buses, like multiple tour buses? This is huge ginormous is the word I would use, like, like huge. Now, down at the bottom of the hill, as you get to the very bottom, right before you get to the temple, you see this huge structure. I, I mean, that's a tour bus. Do you guys see the tour bus? 
And do you see the, the place? Like, I don't know how many tour buses big that is. And so when he's talking about the importance of being lower, I kind of look at it and I said, hey, Jacob, like, is there anybody cool buried there? Like, I serve on a cemetery board. I have to kind of throw this out. I'm kind of like checking out your cemetery because I, maybe we can bring some of this stuff back, you know, kind of incorporate into Valley Center. And he's like, actually, you see that building right there? He's like, that's the prophet Zechariah. The prophet Zechariah, huge. Next slide, please. So this is like a zoomed on this. Huge. There's some like tiny little steps down here. I mean, this is bigger than you or I, like, like probably, I don't know, but it's big. I don't think it would fit in here. And so this is there during that time, you know, and Jesus says, your fathers killed them. Zacharias was killed by the Jewish people because they didn't like what he said. He was Jewish. Like this is an anti-Semitism. We as a church support Israel. We stand with Israel. We love the Jewish people, just to be clear. This is like a Jewish, like within. But they, they killed him. Then the next generation goes, oh, this is where Zacharias, but let's build him a big old thing and we can worship him. He's like, you guys failed to see history. You can go back to the first slide. And he said, it shall be charged against this generation. You guys are guilty before God. And then this final woe, he says in verse 52, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter And you hindered those who are entering. He's saying, you know what? You're the teachers of the law. God has revealed his will, his word to us. This is God's revelation. He's given it to us that we would know who he is. And he says, you had the Bible. You had God's word. You were given the keys. Your job was to teach the word so that people could come to know God and enter into salvation. And he says, you know what? You didn't enter in. You were never saved. You took this and you used it. And not only have you not taught it faithfully, but you're standing there like a linebacker as people who want to find God are trying to get to him, and you're taking them out. That religion is blocking redemption. That's, that's powerful. It's about relationship with Christ. Verse 53, I don't think they ever had lunch. When he left there, The scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. So he leaves there angry. And I do want to say, following up that thought, like I saw that, like I ran out of time. I didn't think I would today. But like, this is the word of God. And I feel like my role, like my number one aim is to teach the Bible, like as we go through books, to teach it clearly so that you know what the Bible says. I try to not put myself on a pedestal because that's, that's why I share all these stories about what's going on in my mind and heart and struggles because I'm just a man and God is perfect and he's given this. And my God, my goal is to teach this because I was raised, like I'm not now slam on the Catholic church, but I was raised Catholic and I, like I left the Catholic church. It was boring. And my aim because of my background in the Catholic church is to never teach the Bible boring. Now, I may fail, like you guys are the judges, but, but I want to teach it, and it's, there's so much life in here. And when I look at this story, there's a couple things. Jesus is going to continue unpacking religion in chapter 12. He's going to get his disciples. He's going to take it even further. So if you, if like you really didn't have a hard time with like some of the stuff here, just wait till next week. It'll come. Um, remember what Matthew 5.20 says. It says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, when I look at the scribes and the Pharisees, 
There are 613 commands in the Old Testament. They could quote all of those commands to you verbatim, no problem. They could then take all of the laws that they created about those laws and tell you all of the laws connected to each 613 commands. They were the master of the playbook. And so how does that make you feel when you hear this? For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter in the kingdom of heaven. Well, you can go two ways with this. The first way is, is that you become like super duper Christian. Like I'm going to memorize the whole Bible. I'm going to read the Bible every day. Like I'm going to do this. I'm going to do all of this stuff so that God accepts me. That's one way. Or the other way is you say, huh, I can barely tell you what the Ten Commandments are. Like there's no way for me to meet that standard. And I think that's the point that Jesus is making. There is no way that we as humans can meet that standard. We can't do it. And to close, I want us to go over to Philippians chapter 3. I I, I would really like to read all of chapter 3 in the first verse of chapter 4. But due to time constraints, I can't. But I would encourage you to read this chapter over and over again. And the reason I'm bringing this chapter into play, of at least the first few verses of chapter 3, Jesus is confronting religion and Pharisees and scribes very sharply. And so I want to bring a Pharisee who is a Christian into perspective. His name was Saul. We know him as the Apostle Paul. And I think his words on this issue are important. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. See, Paul's saying, I know I've already written about this stuff. I've already talked to you. And what he's talking about is guarding them from religion, from works. He says, I don't care how many times I have to reiterate grace and freedom in Christ to you. It's not a bother. Because we're, it's, our relationship with God is based on what Christ has done for us. And I was there, and I'm going to continue to harp on this until the day I die. He goes on to say, verse 2, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Meaning works. Like that you do stuff and you think that God likes you or loves you more because you're doing good. The, the opposite happens also is when you fail, you think, oh, God loves me less today because I stumble today. Or if I do good today, he loves me more. He says, we don't think from the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else had mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He said, you know, it's not about reasoning from our, our flesh, being able to do religion. He's like, but however, comma, if there was anyone that was able to reason from the flesh, I can. There's nobody more qualified concerning being a Pharisee and a religious person than the Apostle Paul. He goes on to say, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, like I'm a Pharisee. I was raised a Pharisee. 
When it comes to the law, see Matthew 5.20, it says, unless your righteousness supersedes, it's going to come into play here. It says, as for zeal, a persecutor of the church. I referenced Stephen talking about all the people. Paul was there, and I think Paul was the one who was in charge that had Stephen killed. As to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. Paul would say, according to those 613 laws found in the Old Testament, and all of the laws associated with them, blameless. Blameless. That's bold. He goes on to say, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. See, this word rubbish, it really downplays the Greek. We, we lose something in translation here. The word is dung. And we live in Valley Center. So we know a lot about dung because we got a lot of animals. Like I have dog dung, chicken dung, um, cat dung. Some of you have horse dung, cow, every, like every animal. He says all of that religious stuff is manure. And this is a powerful picture. Like next time you're out cleaning up your dog's manure or his mess. Like Paul saying that's religion. There's all different shapes and sizes and colors and all kinds of stuff, but it's all that. And I'm not trying to be funny. This is what it says. Rubbish. So that I may what? Gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowships of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul says all that religion is garbage. It'll just wear you down. It'll break you. There's nothing you can do. And when we look at Jesus's words in Matthew 5:20, and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That should make us all feel helpless because we are totally helpless. But the scripture tells us that Jesus on the cross, he took on the sin of the world, that he who knew no sin, your sin, my sin, it was placed upon him so that we might become his righteousness. That our account of like our righteousness account, that little scorecard that we're keeping, hoping that we're better than the 51%, we're told that in faith in Christ that he has imputed his righteousness to us. That we are totally and completely righteous. Not by our own works. There's nothing you can do but completely what Jesus did for you. By faith in Christ. And now some of you might be thinking, but what about, don't we care about personal holiness? And don't we care about like our language and like sin? And don't we? Of course we do. But see, there's a huge difference in wanting to live our lives and follow after Christ from doing it to try to earn favor with God, from saying, you know what? I want, to, I want my words to be pleasing to him. I want how I treat my wife to be pleasing to him. I want how I treat my children to be pleasing to him. I want how I treat my neighbors to be pleasing of him because he did everything for me. 
not to earn favor with God, but because he redeemed me, because he saved me, because he died for my sin, because he went out of his way and was so patient with me. That's why I care about personal holiness and, and how I live my life. I hope it makes sense. More is coming next week. Father, we do thank you and praise you for Jesus, Lord. God, we don't understand your economy because in our economy, if you do something, it costs something. And, and anything that's worth anything has a great value. And Lord, I think because we're so used to this whole idea of a free gift, we've lost sight of the value of the gift. Father, I pray that you would help us to see our total and complete need for you. That it's impossible for us to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes. We might be able to match them, but we cannot exceed them. And so, Father, we're desperate without you. We're thankful that you love us so much, Lord, that you uh, stepped out of heaven, that Jesus lived the perfect life, he fulfilled the law, and that he who knew no sin became sin on my behalf, that my account would be credited with his righteousness far exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes. We thank you, Lord, that our entry into heaven, our becoming your child is based on faith, in Christ. And Father, as you do a work in our hearts, Lord, as you change us from the inside out, as you change the things that we find pleasurable, as you change um, just how we view the world, and as we grow in you, Lord, I pray that you would guard us from religion. Lord, we confess our judgmental attitudes of looking at others, comparing ourselves to others, Father, I pray that you would help us to see people from the inside out, to be concerned for who they are, and to help them on their journey. Help us not to become religious police officers, just writing tickets and condemning those around us. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.